Motorsport Magazine for the very best in motor racing. Let me tell you about our brand new subscription offer for Motorsport Magazine. If you subscribe right now, you will get 30 editions for the same price as 24. So that's 30 Motorsport Magazines for the price of 24. In the UK, that's £84. The rest of the world, 120 And in the United States, $150. Or you can choose to get 15 for the price of 12 which means in the UK, £46. The rest of the world, 64 And in the United States, $85. So subscribe now and make the best of these offers. Hello everybody and a very warm welcome to this, the final Motorsport Magazine podcast of 2011. You join us in the Bluebird Club in the King's Road in London, which is where Christian Horner and Adrian Newey sat down to dinner to talk about the idea of joining forces to make Red Bull a champion Formula One team. So we thought, uh, bearing in mind the events of the last two seasons, this was the perfect place to be to look back on the Formula One year in 2011. And with me, of course, is our veteran Grand Prix correspondent, Nigel Roback, Ed Foster, and our editor, Damien Smith. Um, Nigel, let us start where we began with Red Bull. We know that this is where Christian and Adrian came to dinner. We know what that led to, and one thing it led to is Sebastian Vettel. I mean, he's absolutely blown them away this year, hasn't he? Yeah, without a doubt he has, Rob. Um, in fact, I just while you were doing your preamble there about, about Christian and, uh, and Adrian, it, of course, the thought occurs to me that it very nearly happened a number of years earlier when what became Red Bull was still Jaguar and Bobby Rahal persuaded his old mate Adrian to go and work for them and then of course Mr Dennis stepped in and uh, the procedure was somehow reversed but in other words what I'm trying to say is Adrian could have been on board there years and years and years before he was but going on to Vettel um, it's difficult really to know what to say I mean he, he's of course he hasn't been faultless and no Grand Prix driver ever will be uh, but this has been a season you know of the sort any any Grand Prix driver dreams of having once in his once in his life um, and it was a case of a, a guy who won the previous world championship unexpectedly at the last dance of 2010 I mean he never left the world championship until that last day of 2010 so he went off into the winter as world champion, having not expected to be, with his confidence off the clock, and also with the monkey off his back of you know winning a title. So he was, he was, he had a serene winter. Came back into 2011, and Adrian had dealt them another perfect hand, um, and he drove the whole year like a bloke who turned up at a race expecting to win it and that doesn't very often happen Damien do you think that it this is down to Vettel or is it down to the fact that he's obviously clearly got the very best car in the field 
I think it's down to, to the whole package. In, in Formula One, this has always been the case. In motor racing, it's always the case. Uh, a driver on his own cannot do it alone. He needs the right package behind him. He needs the right car. What the, the clever thing about Red Bull is the structure they have. Um, Dietrich Mateschitz was very canny in putting Christian Horner in charge of his team. And by putting Christian in charge and telling him to go out and put a team together that can win the World Championship, Christian honed in on Adrian as the obvious man to help him do that. Um, he's given Adrian the structure within the team to work as he likes to. We know about the drawing board and the, 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 his, his uh, very hands-on approach. Um, but he's got the right team behind Adrian as well to give him the support in every department uh, technically. And then someone like Sebastian, who, as Nigel just said, is, you know, came into the season full of confidence off the back of that unexpected championship in 2010. Um, and it's just worked perfectly. And I think the, the, the thing for me that stood out this year about how good Vettel is, is about wh where his teammates been. Mark Webber, you know, in 2010, there were many occasions when he matched and was quicker than, than Sebastian. And this year he hasn't been anywhere near him. Uh, now that might be something to do with Mark's own performances, but the fact is that, that Vettel uh, has raised his game and he's taken what is a, undoubtedly a very good car um, and made the very most of it. Well, what I find amazing about this season when, and Vettel is the fact that he he's made mistakes, you know, as you've mentioned, but they've always been in free practice one or you know they've been in a practice session, and when it actually comes to qualifying or the race, he's always there. And you know he he tends to sort of get these little mistakes out, finds a limit early on in the weekend. You know, if if he does have a, an error and and goes on to just completely dominate uh, the the race, and with with Weber, I think he's uh, you know from from what I've heard, he's obviously really struggled with the Pirelli tyres, and it's obviously been much publicised. But Vettel was the only driver who went to go and visit Pirelli before the season started, mm. and you know it's, it's been talked about a lot. But I just I think it's a really good example of of perhaps why there's that difference there. Yeah, I mean, uh, Christian um, said that after Abu <coughs> after Abu Dhabi in 2010. The season was over. Vettel had just won the World Championship. He stayed on in Abu Dhabi for the first test of the Pirelli tyres. And he wanted to know about the construction of the tyres um, and, and the, the fact that, the, that where the rubber came from and um, how you know, the theory behind the tyres. He wanted to know every detail that Pirelli could give him. He was on the case from the very start. You know, the season had only finished the day before and he was already thinking about 2011. Um, and the interesting point about the mistakes, um, one thing that maybe is similar to Michael Schumacher in, in his pomp during the Ferrari era Michael used to make mistakes very often on a Friday but he wouldn't make them over the weekend and the same seems to be true of Vettel now that if he does make a mistake it's early on and then he's able to recover and, uh, uh, except in Montreal Damien that's a good point yeah Montreal where, which was one of the very few times in the, the whole year when we actually saw Sebastian under pressure so um, I, I thought that was actually the only thing that Vettel did that surprised me in 2011 was that he, it amazed me how he let Jensen get so close in Montreal. Um, and I think he put, by, I'm sure he was being, thinking he was being canny and he was going to do the Fangio thing and win by the, you know, at the slowest possible speed in a way. Uh, but I think in allowing Jensen to get as close as he did, he inevitably, you know, that did put pressure on him, which had he gone a little quicker in the late laps and kept Jensen further away, you know, that pressure wouldn't have, wouldn't have been there. So does that give you hope, Nigel, that there's a, a chink in the armour, that we're not about to head into a Vettel era well, of domination? Uh, of course, because I, 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 you know, 
I don't. I, I don't. I hate to see a, a, an entire era dominated by by one driver. It's. Uh, you think back to those years when we set off to a race every fortnight, knowing before we left home that Michael Schumacher was going to win it, um, and it was quite difficult to, uh, you know, find the motivation to pack on those occasions. So I don't want to see a return of that. What seems more likely to me is that we might be going into an, a yet another era of Adrian Newey domination because the man is clearly in a league of his own when it comes to designing a Grand Prix car right now at this moment and coupled with Vettel's extraordinary attention to detail I think one has to fear an era <laughs> of domination. But I think you know with Red Bull they always come into the season with without doubt the fastest car and okay that means you then don't have to develop it as fast as you know other teams would have to but McLaren if they could get their car right at the start of a season then they would be a serious threat because they're just and, and so would Ferrari yeah and you know yeah. and, well we could keep going and you know there's yeah. Mercedes as well if if they came into the season with a strong car then mm. then I might finally win my 10 pound bet with Schumacher winning a race okay i think, I think Red Bull were were it, they were not, it's not fair to say they were fortunate really in any way this year except in the sense that both McLaren and Ferrari began badly for different reasons and um, so the first sort of quarter third of the season you know Red Bull had it very very easy because you know there, there wasn't any real pressure on them but of course this but is the, but that just says everything about Adrian and um, you know, it's criticism of McLaren and Ferrari rather than saying anything other about Red Bull. Nigel, um, an awful lot has been written and said about Red Bull and Sebastian Vettel this year. Uh, but poor old Mark Webber, he's been in the background a bit, hasn't he, really? He, he has, and I, I mean, he, um, he, uh, he did win the last race of the season in Brazil. Finally, but prior to that, he'd only been second twice, um, you know. And this is in a car that, in his teammates' hands, cleaned up. I, 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 to be honest with you, I've been a little bit mystified this season by by the gulf that suddenly opened up between uh, between Sebastian and Mark, because in 2010, all right, you'd say Vettel had the upper hand. But it really wasn't by much at all. I mean, and there were occasions when Mark Flat beat him, just and beat him on sheer pace. And this year, it's been uh, it's been almost entirely a one-way street. And I know it's it's a fact that Mark had the opposite problem from Michael Schumacher, and that he uh, did not care for the characteristics of the Pirellis as much as he had the Bridgestones, whereas Michael was the other way around. So that certainly uh, uh, you know didn't help but it still doesn't to me explain you know the 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 extent of the of the uh, of the gap between them and I thought there were times this year when I thought Mike Mark himself seemed as almost as baffled as we were so I, I'm I'm hoping that in 2012 um, you know the gap will be reduced and uh, it'd be nice to think we could have a situation like we did last year when you know once in a while Weber you know had just simply had the beating of him. Nigel are you totally completely convinced that Weber always has absolutely the same equipment as Vettel? I think it's it's impossible to know it's uh, 
There certainly there have been occasions when there's been uh, a, a you know a new a new uh, front wing or whatever, and there's only been one, and there's no question you know as to where it's gone. I think I think in that regard, I think you know Vettel would always would always get preferential treatment, and perhaps we shouldn't be surprised by that. Um, I, I don't think Mark has, has, has I wouldn't say Mark has been uh, has been uh, penalised. I think I think if that were the case, frankly, we would have known about it because Mike Mark is one of those people. His heart is very much on his sleeve, and if he has something to get off his chest, he, he, you're going to know about it. So, and he hasn't complained about that this uh, this year. I uh, I remain mystified, Rob, and I, as I say, I hope it's uh, I hope it's different in 2012. Let's move on to McLaren, because I think most of us have been surprised at how Jensen Button has imposed himself upon this team. I mean, he's clearly adored by everybody there. He's driven absolutely beautifully. Uh, I think most people assumed that Hamilton would be quicker every weekend, but it's been very far from the case, hasn't it, Nigel? It certainly has. Um I, I think this was this year. I think you know Jensen and McLaren really became comfortable together, um, and I think for a number of reasons. I think for one thing, Jensen did have some say and some influence in the design of the car, in the sense that it was a, a car to you know to, to to suit him, which he hadn't had in the first year because he went there too late. Um, so that was one thing. Um, and I think the Pirelli, the new, the new tyre regime scenario uh, of having deliberately inefficient tyres, if you like, or tyres that had to be looked after, uh, I mean, that could have been made for Jensen as it would have been made in his time for Alain Prost. Um, plus the fact that, you know, Jensen's head is absolutely together. Um, at a time when his teammates patently wasn't. So uh, I think a lot of things came together for Jensen this year and he, and he made the absolute best of them. I mean, it was, it was apparent by mid-season he was race in, race out. He was the, the McLaren's best hope. Damien, Damien c can Hamilton bounce right back, do you think? Oh, yes, he definitely can. Um, I think the, the victory in Abu Dhabi was evidence of... If that Lewis turns up every weekend, then um, he he can he will win another another world championship. The interesting thing about Lewis Hamilton is um, he's had a bad season. He's been beaten by his teammate for the first time. But actually, you think about it, he's still won three Grand Prix, so it's not been that bad. Um, he's had a, a, a terrible season by his own standards, and uh, he's obviously been uh, in personal trouble this year. He's had personal problems to deal with, um, but. He has he has the ability, if he can get his head together and get in a position as Jensen is, where he's happy in life, uh, and that, I think he's he's been very honest and open about the fact that he needs to get into that position, then he can be back to being a um, a world championship contender. And I I still think that he will win multiple world championships. He's still young enough to bounce back, but this will be um, a season that will always mark him for for the rest of his life. And I'd, I think with with Hamilton, you always, you know, as you said, we say it's been a very very bad season for him. He's still won three Grand Prix. It's 
I think he, he almost you know, set himself up for something like this, coming into the sport as he did, and immediately competitive, in a competitive car. And as soon as something doesn't quite go right, it looks much worse than it does. And he's, he's finished the championship this year at fifth, which is the, the worst equal place he's ever come. But that's still fifth in the championship. You know, that's, that's still a lot of points. It's, it's not a bad result. I think Lewis's problem is that um, in 2007, he had, to my mind, the best rookie season any Grand Prix driver has ever had, certainly that I can remember. Um, and although he won the championship the following year, I didn't think he drove as well that year. And frankly, I don't think he's ever driven as well as he, as he did in 2007. And I... I I know he's had his problems this year, and, and, and you know, it's, it's impossible to be unsympathetic to them. Um, but it probably sounds hard to say it, but the sort of problems Lewis has had this year are not exactly new in Formula One. Um, and I've known drivers in a similar situation, but their driving did not go to pieces because of it. And I think the statistic, honestly, as you say, Lewis has won three, three races this year. Most people would be thrilled with a season like that. But the statistic, I think, that says most about him is that he, he started in the first three 12 times and he only finished in the first three six times. I think there's one other element here, uh, which is that um, Hamilton, I think, requires very much the respect. And I, this came to me when Alonso said in Abu Dhabi how much he respected Hamilton as a driver. And Lewis was over the moon about this. I was, I was quite surprised at how strongly he reacted to that, how, how chuffed he was that Alonso should have said those words. And I think that Lewis maybe at some point this season realised that the team really did adore Jensen Button. I mean, there's no question the team love having him there. There's a lot of energy around Jensen. And maybe Lewis, you know, the, all these factors came together just to dent his confidence. And I think when you drive as close to the limit as Lewis does, the one thing you desperately need is confidence. And you need to feel absolutely on top of yourself. I think you're right, Rob, but McLaren don't think they could do any more to make Lewis feel at home and part of the team. They bend over backwards to, to um, do everything they can to give him what he needs to win. Um, I think he's shown himself. I think what Nigel's saying is he's, he's shown himself to be very mature at times, and uh, yeah, he's come across as petulant, very fragile, absolutely fragile. Uh, and that's the biggest doubt we've got over him for the rest of his career: is how will he react under these situations when you know life is life; it doesn't always go swimmingly for you, and uh, you've got to rise above all those personal problems and perform on track. Let's I, talk I, about I, I, just one thing. I'd like to add that about about Lewis. Um, his driving has sort of varied between um, sublime and awful, I think, this year. But leaving that aside, what did really amaze me was that at a time when he was absolutely not delivering, um, when his teammate was, he was very often critical of his team critical of the car, critical of the way the team, the, the, the PR um, activities he was required to do and all the rest of it. And he was very public with all this. Um, and I just thought that probably is not the smartest thing. You know, 
you are not at the moment king of the world. It might be quite a sound plan, you know, not to upset them because they've got plenty of reasons at the moment to be upset with you. Let's get away from drivers just for a minute and talk about DRS uh, and Pirelli and Kurs because these three things brought a lot, in my view, to the 2011 season. I mean, I, I'm not in favour of gimmicks, but on the other hand, you can't deny that we saw a huge amount of overtaking, and this was largely due to Kurs and DRS. Uh, Pirelli, I think, did a fantastic job overall. Uh, the racing was certainly invariably exciting. What was your take on the new things for 2011, Nigel? Um, well, I, I, you know, I've written it many times. I don't like anything artificial. I don't like anything gimmicky or artificial. Having said that, I thought the um, the new uh, tyre strategy, call it what you want, tyre strategy or whatever, manufacturing tyres deliberately to have an effect on the outcome of a race um, was new. Um, and I actually thought it worked extremely well, less so towards the end of the year, um, because I think Pirelli became uh, a little more conservative. They started the, doing uh, a, a proper job. Huh? <laughs> they they well, started well, doing exactly, too, yes. too good a job. Uh, yes. They've started doing what race man tyre manufacturers always had done, yes, which is to you know, make good tyres. Hmm. Um, but, I, but I actually, I, I, I thought I was quite okay with that. Um, and I was absolutely delighted that a, 10 days or so ago, Ross Braun said, we absolutely do not need DRS. The tyres, the introduction of this new tyre regime was enough to transform the quality of the racing in Formula 1, and I agree with that. I'm not a great Kurz fan, I understand it's popular because it's green and we have to be seen to be responsible and everything else. Um, but again, you know, not all the teams have it. Uh, and, and so I'm perfectly happy with the tyres and I, I would be perfectly happy to go down the road simply with the, with the tyre philosophy we have now and forget the rest. I have to say the, the DRS, I'd, I'm sort of, I suppose slightly disagree just because I, yes, there have been times when they've got it wrong. The DRS zone has been too long and overtaking is just made to be a bit of a joke. Um, and then, you know, when there was a double DRS, you'd, you'd make the overtake in the first DRS zone and then suddenly the, the whole position would be reversed straight away in the ne next DRS zone. And that obviously needs to be looked at. But the big thing for me is the fact that the, the thing that I hated was when a patently faster car just could not get past or even close to the car in front. And they might even be on different strategies. They weren't even actually technically racing each other. And it would completely ruin someone's race through no fault of their own. And that's, and that's what I love about the DRS. Is it, it, it gives them just a, a better chance of getting out of that situation. I, I entirely agree with what you say I, I, about this whole phenomenon. We, let's go back to Alonso and Massa at... Hoc at um, at Hockenheim, the year of all the controversy about the team orders and all the rest of it. You know, Fernando was streets quicker than Felipe, but they were in the same car and there was just no way he could pass. That, to me, is a condemnation of the rules as they have been allowed to evolve over the years. Um, and the overwhelming significance of, of aerodynamics um, and dirty air and everything else meant that it was virtually impossible to pass. 
I would have preferred it if they'd fundamentally addressed the problem, the cause of the problem, rather than coming in with a, a sort of, I, to my mind, fairly cheap sort of sidestep um, around it. See, look at, look at this year. What was the, I mean, the best to me, the best single moment of 2011 was Weber's pass of Alonso at Eau Rouge. And I, I see it, I don't know how many times I've seen it now, every time I see it, I expect them to have an accident. Um, but it was, it was just a perfect piece of, of driving by both of them. But, uh, I, you know, I, I, at Monza, I, I was talking to Fernando about that, and he said, you know, yes. He said, I couldn't believe quite he was going to do it, but he, then I suddenly realized, yes, he probably is, actually. So, but he said, but I knew it wasn't a problem because I knew a lap later I would do him on the hill on DRS, which he, which he duly did. And so to me, that just negated the, you know, the greatest 10 seconds of the season were wiped out by lap later, up the hill, right, I'm behind him, open the flap, I'm going by, goodbye. That's, that's not the same thing yeah. to me. I mean, the problem is, is you can't, you know, Damien said it a lot, you, you can't uninvent the decades of aerodynamic development. And unless you make it like Formula Ford, which no one wants, you've got to be extremely clever at the rules because you've got the best minds in the business all trying to work your way around the rules you just invented. And, you know, that, the double diffuser put a huge spanner in the works with that. But so I think, you know, yeah, I know it's a gimmick, but it's, it's a gimmick that has 50% of this time greatly improved the racing for me but I wonder yeah. if, I wonder if in uh, the years to come DRS will become irrelevant because the consensus seems to be amongst Formula 1 teams that Curs is, is going to grow in importance and that's where they're putting the investment at the moment is developing their Curs systems and going into the new engine era um, w with turbos that um, with um, a tyre philosophy we have now and then an increasing influence of Kurs, there will be no need for DRS and we'll, we'll, maybe we'll see it disappear in a year or two. We're now less than two months away from the Motorsport Magazine Hall of Fame evening and you can join us on the 16th of February 2012 at the Roundhouse in Camden in London by going to our website and entering the competition to win free tickets to our Hall of Fame. All you do is go to motorsportmagazine.com and enter the competition. Hope to see you there. Despite being an invitation-only awards evening for the motorsport fraternity, there are five pairs of tickets up for grabs. All you need to do is tell us who you think should be inducted into the 2012 Motorsport Magazine Hall of Fame. By offering us your opinion, you'll be entered into a prize draw to win one of five pairs of tickets. We'll be giving one pair away every week from the 30th of December and the last pair will be drawn on the 27th of January. So if you want to be with us for the Hall of Fame in London on February the 16th, go to the website right now. Ferrari. Nigel, I know you're keen to talk about Ferrari. Um, Ferrari were, were, were disappointing, no question about it. I mean, they, they had a wind tunnel problem at the beginning of the year, which they found out quite late in the day, because they were never able to understand why their wind tunnel figures were fantastic. And on the track, it, you know, the performance was not uh, a match for that. 
Um, and when eventually it was realized that they did have a, a calibration, major calibration problem with the wind tunnel, it was sort of almost start again. Um, so they've had a they've had a very hard year. They've I mean they you know they've won a race. Um, having said that, I think um, uh, yes, I'm <laughs> I'm absolutely an Alonso fan. But I think I think Alonso was absolutely magnificent in 2011. I think. Um, I think to, 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 to be able to qualify in the first three only three times and to finish in the first three ten times says everything about you know his, his attitude. I, I, I think he did... Sebastian and, and Red Bull is difficult to say because we'll never know just how good that car is and how, how close to the edge Sebastian was with it. it, was, it that was a di they were on a different planet. If you take them out of it, I think Alonso did more with what he had this year than any other driver. Um, and I'm, at the same time, frankly, uh, uh, you know, a little bit mystified by uh, by Massa, I, a I, fifth place. I have to uh, say, for on, on the Massa front, I really struggle to understand how he's kept his drive for for next year, because. Surely, if you're a Ferrari driver, you should be um, you should be performing better than he is. And and there's so few good good drives in Formula One, top drives, and there's so many young drivers knocking on the door. Surely, it's time for Ferrari to to take a chance on a, on a Bianchi or um, one of these up and coming guys who, at the moment, are frustrated and can't find anywhere to go. I, I, I'm not sure, though, Damien, that a top team is going to do that. Um, it is only three years, after all, since Massa, for a few seconds, was world champion. Um, and there were years, there were times in those years when he was Michael's teammate at Ferrari, when he plain blew Michael away. And, and it's easy to forget now, in that period of sort of 06, 07, 08, Filippo won a lot of races and, and won them beautifully, won that dominated them. Um, I think perhaps he isn't the driver he was before his accident. Um, let's face it, he was usually nearly always the leading Ferrari driver when Raikkonen was there. Um, and I think, I think, first of all, I think Alonso is that good. Uh, and I think perhaps Felipe is not quite what he was. Um, he was unlucky this year in, in this sort of however many controversies there were with Lewis Hamilton. Um, and he did get punted out of quite a few races. Uh, but even so, given that he qualified well, he was one of only four drivers to make Q3 in every race. Uh, so he, he invariably qualified well, and then in, whereas Alonso's races went north, went better than qualifying, Felipe's went the other way. And that was disappointing. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you mentioned it just there when, you know, in 06, 07, 08, he was such a good driver on so many occasions but the worrying thing for me this year is just we haven't even seen glimpses of it and you know, we, you know we've just been talking about Hamilton having a, you know an average season but there have been glimpses of absolute brilliance and you know Massa you know what was that driver he could just blow everyone away on, on any given day and, and we haven't even seen that at all 
whether it's even in one session, whether it's sort of qualifying. I think it was quite a middling car, Ed. That's yeah. the only thing I would say this year, the Ferrari. I think it was... Yeah. But, I mean, you know, with Alonso, it's, you know, as you were yeah. saying earlier, yeah. that's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But do you think yeah. there's any way that Massa can keep his drive beyond next year? What do you think he has to do to I know I don't. I don't think there's any way to keep his drive. I, I think if Kubica were back and fit, I don't think he would have kept it in 2012. That's um, probably the key, isn't it, actually? I Kubica. think so, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, can we move on to Mercedes-Benz? Because I think a lot of us thought that Ross Braun would turn this team round. Uh, why wouldn't we think that? I mean, Benetton, Ferrari, Ross Braun is known to be an extremely clever guy, but it, it hasn't happened. Um, they finished fourth in the Constructors' Championship, but they didn't get on the podium once in 19 races. Nigel, what's going on here? I, I'm not sure I can give you a definitive answer, Rob. I, th I think it's just... It is just taking a bit longer than everyone expected. I, th I, th I think it will happen. I do think it will happen. I, th I mean, um, Ross has been recruiting, um, you know, of late. Aldo Costa, for instance, has you know has gone there, um, uh, you know, from Ferrari, and Ross and Aldo obviously go way back and know each other and understand each other and so on. Um, I I don't really know what to tell you. Um, I think that the um, you know it's a reasonable car. It's a blindingly quick car in a straight line. It's not been particularly kind to the tyres, uh, which has certainly compromised uh, Rosberg, uh, I think a time or two in the races. Um, it, it isn't that it's a bad car, it's just that it's, you know, it, it's not a Red Bull or McLaren. We should, or, or, or Ferrari. We should probably remember that um, when Newey joined Red Bull, he didn't just wave his magic pencil and suddenly Red Bull were there on the pace. They, you know, that took them time to, to gel and, and create what we see now. Um, I get the feeling that this, the synergy between what was Braun GP and Mercedes-Benz hasn't been smooth. The, no, the easiest. No, no, it hasn't. Uh, also, they, when, when they had that championship year, they had to get rid of so many people because of budget reasons. And when you sort of cut your team, not in half, but, you know, you cut so many people out of the team, that's going to have a knock-on effect, not just for one season, but, but two. Yeah, they've um, they've uh, that Braun era was very much a one-off, and we we kind of it's kind of irrelevant now, really, to, to what what came after. Um, I suppose on the face of it, it's a bit embarrassing for Mercedes that the team that that, that dominated the early part of the the World Championship in 2009 has, has has fallen so far behind. But there are good reasons behind that, and it is it's not really relevant to what we've seen this year. Um, but I, I agree with Nigel. I think it will come, and. I think as fans, uh, everyone will hope that it will come next year because you've got the prospect then of uh, a McLaren and a Ferrari team that are both improving and closing in on Red Bull. And if Mercedes can be there as well, we could have a, you know, eight potentially eight drivers fighting for wins week in, week out. Um, and I've got a feeling that Mercedes will be much closer next year. I don't think they'll be um, uh, where we see them this year. I think they will, they will make progress. Nigel, um, Rosberg's been very, very much a match for Schumacher. In fact, Rosberg's out-qualified him most of the time. Is it time for Michael to retire? I know we've asked this question before, but just briefly. Oh, what, I don't know what you say about Michael. I mean, you, you have to say he was 
considerably better in, in 2011 than he was the year before. Um, I, I truly didn't think at the end of 2010 he was a driver who deserved to keep his drive. And I think had he been, had he been anybody other than Michael Schumacher, he, he would have been gone. Um, having said that, he was the very opposite of Mark Webber this year in that he liked the Pirellis infinitely more than he liked the Bridgestones. Um, and we're never going to see Michael, you know, as he was. He just is simply not as quick as he used to be, and that's the end of it. There's nothing to talk about. Um, but he, he still tended to start very impressively and always seemed to make up places, you know, in the first 30 seconds minute of a, of a, of a race. So he's, his opportunism and his sort of awareness is as sharp as ever. Um, but he wasn't, he certainly compromised himself in qualifying. I mean, it was 16-3 to Nico. Um, and, you know, that gives you a lot of work to do on race day. Um, but he was, he was, you know, you can't say he did a bad job in, in 2011. He, he did, did a pretty good job. And there's no sign of flagging motivation, is there? He still seems to be up for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he is. I think he is. Uh, it's hard for me to understand how somebody used to you know, being on the podium, on the top step of the podium every fortnight. Um, and he has not once been on the podium since he came back. So it's quite hard to understand how the motivation does keep going. But I think whatever I like or don't like about Michael Schumacher, I think he is one of those people who simply loves driving Formula One cars. I, I think that's um, Kimi put it quite well when his, you know, him coming back next season was announced, and he said, "What I really missed was actually racing, because you know, in rallying, it's just against the clock. You're just racing a clock." And I think that's, as you said, Nigel, that's the same as Schumacher. He loves racing and he loves being competitive, and, and that's what he missed. My take on Mercedes-Benz would be that Ross Braun, I think, was hoping that Mercedes-Benz would be the kind of company that would let him be Ross Braun give him a huge amount of independence, independent thinking, which is what he didn't have with Honda, and I'm not sure that that has happened. I think that might be a problem. I, I'm, I'm not sure Mercedes is the company to get into bed with if you want to be like that. No, but I think that hasn't happened, and I think that's affected the team. Let's move on to Toro Rosso, where uh, Buemi and Algashwari were talked about as being the next big thing in Formula One only a few years ago but neither of them has managed to impress sufficiently to be mentioned as a potential Red Bull driver. Will they be dropped in favour of people like Ricardo or Jean-Éric Verne? Nigel, um, Wemi and Algeshwari, good, very competent midfield drivers, and that's about it, yes? I think so. That's my, yeah, that's, that's, that's my feeling on the matter. Um... It's not really fair to say they they deserve they both deserve to be dropped, but on the other hand, you sort of think, well, really, what's the point of going on, you know, for another season with them? Because we've got a fairly clear idea of exactly what we'll get. Um, I, I I don't see either of them ever being thought of in terms of promotion to the to the Red Bull proper team. Um, so I would. Um, you know, I'd be quite happy to see Verne and Ricardo in the in the Toro Rosso's next year. Whether it'll happen, or I don't, I don't know. But um, I, I think Wayne and Agusquari are 
good, competent drivers, but um, I don't think they're going any further. Just shows what a tough world it is, isn't it, in Formula One, that two guys who haven't really done a lot wrong, um, you know, their, their Formula One careers are, are, are in danger of being more or less over, and unless, you know, they need, a, they need a change of tack, they need to go and do something else, I think. And um, yes, I think I agree with Nigel, it probably makes sense for for other young but wrong young Red Bull drivers to be promoted to that team um, and Toro Rosso for me just just seemed lost this year they they, they hardly ever stood out in terms of uh, um, you know perennial midfielders at best yeah I mean I you know, we, we mentioned it earlier I think it is always just so hard to stand out in a midfield car you know Nigel you just said that about Ferrari and not that that's a midfield car but it's it's so hard nowadays to really impress and do something and unless you're in one of those front-running cars to have one of those races where everyone says wow that's the only time i just off the top of my head was subtle in brazil and you know with the force india which is by no means a front runner but you looked at his race weekend and you thought yeah that was a hellishly good race weekend it's true i think the other thing about Bohemian and Agashwari is that they are a little bit much of a muchness I think if I think if one of them had sort of fairly clearly dominated the other, it might have been more tempting to think of terms of oh well you know he might be a there might be something about him, whereas it tends to be fairly even Stephen you know be, between them on qualifying and you know and on points and on race results. So, well while we're on the subject of Toro Rosso, let's look at the the rest of that midfield group, which is Force India, Sauber, Renault, um, some great battles down the midfield this season some fantastic racing actually way way off the lead um should should Renault have dropped Heidfeld can we begin there Nigel well <clears throat> I was thinking the other day you know um I think Heidfeld finished up I don't know 11th in the world championship something like that in spite of the fact that he didn't do you know a lot of, a lot of the races uh he he had virtually as many points as Petrov. Yeah, he was just three short. Yeah, though. and he started off, you know, the year before the team as a whole started off very well. You know, Petrov was third in Melbourne, for instance. They were both routinely qualifying in Q3, and they were, um, I think, was Nick third in Malaysia? Nick made an incredible start, and I think was up to, like, third at the first corner. So I thought it was a bit harsh. Some of Eric Boulier's decisions... Uh, Surprised me. Let's put it that way. Um, and I, I mean, yes, there were times when he struggled, and they certainly lost their their impetus after a very, very promising start. Um, but it seemed a little harsh to me to uh, to drop him. I suppose to a degree they felt what their season was. Well, it's going to be so so. You know, so try somebody else and see see where we go with that. Um, well. I was going to ask you, Rob, would you have dropped him? Yes, I would have dropped him only on the basis that I think he wasn't going to do anything exciting. And as Nigel says, when they realised the car wasn't as quick as uh, they thought it was, why not try somebody with potential? You know, I mean, potential is everything, isn't it? If you discover, if had they discovered Senna really was, you know, an absolutely huge talent. But I think what Nigel was hinting at there is that if you want to score points, then Nick Heidfeld's your man. Historically, yeah. Something that always stuck in my mind about Nick was that um, he only raced there one year. 
with Williams, but Patrick Hebb was a tremendous fan of Nick Heidfeld. Thought he was terribly underrated. Uh, was very impressed by how hard he worked, uh, and and fundamentally thought he was very very underrated. And you know, as you and I both know, Patrick is not easy to impress. Um, and and when he said that about Nick, I was uh, you know it registered with me. You you wonder do you wonder don't you whether or not he, whether he's a strong enough character for the cauldron of pressure that is Formula One. You know he he doesn't impose himself upon either the public or the. Do you, do you know what I mean? There's a slight. He's quite. He's a he's a very sort of quiet fairly private sort of guy isn't he yeah the uh, you know I just for the latest session of the magazine I was talking to Trevor Carlin um, about young drivers and, and what what the difference is between the good and the great and I sort of get the and, you know it always reminds me of Heidfeld when he talks about it because he says you know the good drivers um, don't have that edge they don't have that bit of attitude the you know as we've seen with Vettel countless times if some, something doesn't go his way he's not happy about it and that he said that's the difference and with Vettel you know he'll love you he doesn't he, in his, his own words but you know he, he doesn't really care about the team at all as long as he's got a car that will let him win and but if, if, if it's not right and he'll be so cross he'll just be you know out of this world but with Heidfeld he just seems sort of you know much more level and doesn't have that edge he's always reminded me of a sort of Thierry Bootsen type of character yeah um, yeah a very very good pro who, yeah. with a fair win, could have won a couple of Grand Prix the way Bootson did. Um, uh, he never really often had a, an ultra-competitive car. I mean, he was always touted after his 3000 title of being, as being a McLaren driver. Well, that never happened. I, I think in many ways he never got over that. No. Quite seriously. I, th I think, you know, when Kimi suddenly bang out of nowhere went there. Yeah. And I, and I think... I think that had a profound effect on Nick. It's incredible to think that you know he's he's had a something like a twelve-year Grand Prix career, and yet to the end he was always having to prove himself. Um, and I think he's a little bit hard done by. And personally, I wouldn't have dropped him. I'd have kept him. I think Boulier makes some very odd decisions, and for a team boss, is is quite an odd character. Uh, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's actually quite interesting to have someone like him in Formula One. But um, you see that Heidfeld finished so close to Petrov in the points. I think over the second half of the year he would have um, he would have performed better and he would have scored more points than, than than Bruno Senna. And let's face it, when it comes down to it, that's what it's about because the teams need to finish as high as they can in the championship to, to get the money for the next year. Big money, yeah, big money. Let's talk about Force India. I think we're. Do we all agree that it's been a good year for Force India? They, they've really. I, 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 yeah, absolutely. Very, very much better in general terms. Much better second half of the year than first. Um, I think. You know, as um, new bits came along and the car was improved and improved and improved, particularly, I mean, Satil, Satil was much, much stronger in the second half of the year than he was in the first. Um, and Paul, I just thought was, um, maybe I'm biased because he's a new young Brit or whatever, but I think he was just very, very quietly, very understated, just thoroughly impressive the year long. And, you know, he qualified sixth, I think, at Silverstone. Pretty, pretty impressive. Yeah, I mean, there's something that always strikes me about Terrestre and coming into the, you know into F1. He's he sort of hit the ground running, 
And that's all very well if you've been testing, you know, non-stop and everything like that, like Hamilton did before he came into the into the sport. But it's I just found that amazing because okay, he had the Friday practice sessions the year before, and DTM is although it's a touring car championship, it's they're sort of physically single seaters basically underneath I think that's that's what the drivers say they like to drive but still he didn't he didn't need you know two three Grand Prix weekends to to get up to speed and he was just on it you know from the first race yeah he was D- deeply comp- um, competent guy Paul Resta, and I think the, the key for his career now I think in, in next year is to take the next step and step it up another gear and that's what uh, he'll need if he's going to get uh, a big drive in the future but what a great start I think he's done, done a tremendous job and you can't um, emphasize em- enough comparing well to Sutil is, is an achievement because Sutil is a good Grand Prix driver and I think probably deserves to keep his Force India drive for next year probably won't though <laughs> no, no. <laughs> well, no. Like most of my predictions, you mean? Yeah, quite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I say, I say he won't keep it, and then maybe he will. Yeah. Okay. Um, Sauber. It's a funny team, Sauber, isn't it? They've been around forever now, but nothing ever quite happens. I mean, they don't have a lot of money, no. but they inherited a lot of good resources from BMW, and they've got two exciting drivers there. That, that's the fun part, isn't it? I think, you know, invariably Sauber start off a season pretty well. Um, and then as the year goes on, they just get, you know, outdeveloped by everybody else. They, you know, as you say, they, you know, it's not, it's not a rich team. Um, you know, they, they can't compete with the top teams. Um, and I think they probably finish up the year with a car far closer to what they had at the start of the year than, than uh, you know, than, uh, than most people. Um, and their drivers, um, Kobayashi, oddly enough, to, uh, has been quieter this year, hasn't he? And I, and I, I was thinking the other day, well, has he been quieter, or is it just that simply DRS has now enabled everybody else in the world to overtake? Because 2010, we we, we were quite often getting very excited about some of Kamui's overtaking well, moves, he had, he, but they were very clean. They were nearly always clean, incisive, beautifully executed, and... Um, he sort of had a personal DRS, didn't he, really? Well, <laughs> I mean, but he sort of almost gave the lie to the fact that, you know, you can't overtake in Formula One. Um, so, I, I think this year, I mean, I was the great critic of the lack of overtaking in Formula One. Um, I now, to be honest with you, think we have too much. I think we have too much easy overtaking in Formula One. So, so Kobayashi, um, bit up and down, first half of the season was better than the second, and Perez is quite, di- I find quite difficult to read, uh, because some races he's looked really quite exceptional, um, notably his very first race in Melbourne, when, you know, when he ran the whole race without, without a tyre change, which had been thought impossible. Um, so... Um, there's obviously a huge amount of talent there, um, but I'll be interested to see how he, how he progresses in the future. Damien, Sauber, Perez, Kobayashi. Yeah, Perez started very feistily and looked looked very promising. Uh, I mean, Sauber kind of disappeared into that midfield void as the season went on, and I'd say overall they had quite a disappointing year. Um, they signed, re-signed the drivers very early, I thought. Both Kobayashi and Perez were confirmed for next year very early, and I just wonder... 
if maybe they should have kept them uh, on tender hooks a little bit longer about whether they would keep their drives for next year. I think that is fairly typical Peter Sauber though. He's a he's he's not a a tricky guy. He's a very you know, straight he, man, he's, isn't he? He's yeah. a very, very straight man. Yeah. But also, I suppose, for, for some drivers, you know, heaven forbid, if I was ever a, f a driver, I'd, I'd like to know. And that knowledge that your, your seat is safe the next year would probably make me perform better because I'm not worried about whether I've got a job or not. Um, hint, Damien. <laughs> uh, so it's, you know, I, I think that maybe they benefited from that. Uh, rather than actually, you know, having to every single weekend going out and saying, "If I say, oh my goodness, if I make a mistake, then that might be the end, end of my career." I think it depends what sort of person you are. I mean, I would say Sutil drove the race he drove in Brazil partly because he doesn't know what he's doing next year, or it, we understand that he doesn't know what he's doing next year. He drove a blinder of a race. I, doesn't it depend what sort of person you are? Some people want to know they've got security and then they can focus better some people react well to well you know you might have a job you might not i think i think fundamentally they react well to um job security i certainly think oh, it was a very very smart thing of martin whitmarsh to get jensen you know on a new contract for the future and here yeah. we are you know in uh, beginning of december and um a contract has been offered to lewis but he's delaying he's away is he <laughs> he's he's no there's no hurry you know no no i'll sign it you know maybe i'll sign it um and fine you know if if he's if he wants to 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 do that to play games to sort of you know i might go to ferrari i might go to red bull you know mm. well, if he goes to ferrari think, that'll put the cat among the pigeons won't I, it i i yes i i i uh I think uh, I, I, that's, a, that's a situation I find almost impossible to, to imagine, quite honestly. But, uh, but all I'm saying is Lewis is, is delaying, whereas Jensen and Martin Whitmarsh did their deal and they were both very happy with it. And I think it was to the benefit of all. Okay, uh, very brief, briefly my take on Sauber is that I don't think Perez has been the same since the Monte Carlo accident. Good point. No, that's probably... Uh, yeah. To me, if you look at his season, he hasn't. He didn't have the fire in his belly. He didn't have that incredible attacking verve that he came into Formula One with. And it seems to me that that was after Monaco. But just a view. But you, you look at that midfield. I'm just looking at the drivers in the in in, in the championship order here. From Sutil, Petrov, Heidfeld, Kobayashi, Deresta, Algasari, Boemi, Perez, and then you into Barrichello. I mean that that midfield group. It's incredibly competitive. And actually, as as a um, as a battle, it's as intense and as interesting as what goes on at the front of the field. We don't see so much of it, but um, how tough it is to make your mark out of that lot and how difficult it is then to be noticed by the Ferraris and McLarens of this world. Okay, let's move on to Williams. Um, wow, what can you say about Williams? What is there to say? I mean, it's just been a very sad uh, year for them and for all of those of us who are their fans, and I think we all are. Sam Michael's gone, gone to McLaren. Patrick Head has stepped down. Mike Coughlin has gone there, slightly controversially, I suppose one could say. Nigel, are they going to bounce back, do you think? I don't know, Rob. I think not that long ago I would have, I would have said, oh, yeah, yeah, in time they will because they're Williams. Um, I'm... You know, most of my working life, I've sort of thought of Williams and McLaren in the same 
same breath almost. Um, you know, they had years, and again, of course, they both employed Patrick Head at different, at, um, excuse me, Adrian New at different times. And and they had their, their, both those teams had their glory years. And if they had a bad year, they usually just sprang back from it fairly quickly. Um, and I would have said three years ago, maybe, certainly four years ago, I would have said, oh, yeah, yeah, they'll, they'll be back. And now I, I'm, I'm really not sure. It's, it's, you know, Interlagos was last weekend. That was the seventh anniversary of Williams's last Grand Prix win with Juan Pablo Montoya. Um, and since then, really, it's gone from, from really from bad to worse to catastrophic, hasn't it? I mean, even last year they had 40-odd points. This year they've got five. And... It's, I think, increasingly, unfortunately and sadly, uh, a Williams team that is harder and harder to recognize. Yes, Frank is still Frank and, you know, um, and he will never change and he will, he will always be, he is Williams, he is the figurehead. Other than that, it's sort of increasingly hard to find many signs of Williams Grand Prix engineering, uh, you know, as we, as we knew it. Um, so there's been certainly, you know, regime change, um, and thus far you can't say it's working out terribly well. Damien? Well, Rob, we've had, we've been blessed this year to have Patrick as our columnist in the magazine, and um, we've really enjoyed working with him and reading his words. Um, and in his last column with us, he's, he's written about... Um, the new structure in place and the new people in, who are now um, uh, in that team and will have the, the challenge of lifting the team from their worst season for years. Actually, it's the worst season ever, I think, isn't it? Um, and uh, it's got to get better. It can't get much worse than, than this. You know, the only way it can get worse is by ending up fighting with the HRTs and Virgins, really. Uh, God forbid. Um, so at some points this season, they almost have been. Well, they have been. Yes, that's true. They have been. And um, I think it will get better for them. I think this structure seems uh, a sensible one from a technical point of view. And I think uh, the facilities at Williams, most people would, would agree, are, are top-notch. So really, the uh, the ingredients should be there. They they were right to make the big change they made this year. I think um, uh, Sam Michael, um, with um, he deserves a lot of respect for what he's achieved over, over his career. But I think the time was right for a change. It's like a football club with a, a high respected manager who has a bad run. They change the man at the top to try and give the, give the team some new impetus. And I think that was that was required. Um, and uh, time was hell. But I think I think they'll get better next year. Ed Foster. Yeah, well, you know, I think it sort of mirror exactly what Nigel and, and Damien said. I mean, you know, just from a personal perspective, um, you know, I was I was growing up, you know, when Nigel Mansell was was there winning, you know, winning the races with Williams, uh, you know, and it's I I just find it really sad, you know, and it's it's just one of those, you know, you know, I'm sure we'll go on to talk about the Lotus and HRT inversions of this world in a second, but. You know that's that's not where Williams belong. You know those three are sort of a, a newish teams, and okay, they don't have an excuse to be that slow. But I just yeah, I just hope it does change. Um, there's no point in me saying whether it will or not because I'll be guessing. I, th okay. I think to a degree, right. Sam was probably 
um, a little too much of a one-man band in the sense that he was, uh, you know, he worked really absurdly hard. Um, and I think probably it was more than one guy could, uh, could cope with. Um, their car this year was, in many ways, quite radical. And they, they did have high hopes of it. Um, and, you know, sadly, it was a dud. And I think the other thing is, you know, um, I think perhaps Adam Parr uh, needs to think about some of the things he says. Uh, when they dropped Nico Hulkenberg for Pastor Maldonado, it was clear there was only one reason for it. I mean, you know, <laughs> you don't need to be a road scholar to work out what it was. And so everybody wrote that Maldonado was in the drive because he was bringing a lot of Venezuelan, Venezuelan petrodollars with him. And Adam Parr's response was to describe the, re the reaction of the press as repulsive, which is simply an absurd thing to say. You know, we've all been around a while. We all know how Formula One works. We wrote what had happened. Uh, and, and it was the most peculiar response to say it was repulsive. It was also bang on the nail and everybody knew it. On, on that note, Ash, I think Maldonado's actually had a very good season overall. Um, he's been in a car that is not easy to look good in. And he's done, he's done a, a yeah. pretty good job, I think. Not bad. Not bad. Not bad at all. And he was very unlucky to be bundled out of Monaco, where he would have scored his first points. Okay, um, I have optimism for Williams. New engine, Renault engine, new senior management. Mike Coughlin, well respected in the uh, racing car design department. Uh, I think there's a real strong will there to to get back up from where they are. And I'm sure if Frank and Patrick, who will still be there, don't forget, they'll both still be there, they'll be pushing like hell. Uh, I cannot imagine Frank Williams accepting this kind of situation ad infinitum. So I feel there's optimism there. I feel that they have hit the low point and they're going to go back up. Let's move on to what we call the new teams, except they're not new teams anymore, are they, Nigel, really? They're, I mean, these teams ought to be now banging on the door of the midfield, ought they not? We're talking about Lotus, HRT, Virgin. Um, I mean, in the, what's your take on how much progress they've made and is it enough? Well, I mean, I, I think you have to draw a clear distinction between Lotus and the other two. Um, um, I think, you know, Lotus, unquestionably in 2011, Lotus did progress um, and they certainly put you know distance between themselves and Virgin and HRT but having said that um, they were still mired in Q1 uh, and there are points for the first 10 these days and okay I know racing cars Formula 1 cars these days are reliable to a degree at one time inconceivable but still the fact remains that after two years, not one of the new teams has scored a single point. Um, and I, as I say, Lotus have progressed, no, no doubt about it, but they still haven't progressed to the point they've scored a point. Um, I expect them to next year, 
when they are uh, caterum or dorking or whatever <laughs> um, and uh, that's uh, another county but, that's another but, town in England by the way everybody but uh, um, I I I, I, I was surprised. I, I, I didn't expect them to get many points this year, but I, I did think Lotus would score two, three, four, five points maybe. You know, the odd tenth, ninth, whatever. So I was surprised by that. Um, and I, but I, 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 I think Lotus will progress. But the other two, I'm less confident. Damien, uh, the new-ish teams. Uh, d does HRT deserve a place on the grid? Should Jano Trulli still be racing? Let's look at some of that. <laughs> Jano Trulli, um, strange to see him still pedalling around at the back of the grid. Um, you know, he's he was one of the fastest Formula 1 drivers um, five or six years ago. There's no doubt about his speed over one lap. We all knew that. Um, but it feels like he's been treading water for a long time and you know he's he's, he's going he's going backwards with the, with Lotus. He's not going forwards anymore. Um, he's clearly one of these people like Michael Schumacher, I guess. That he's a Grand Prix driver. That's what he does for a living. That's all he knows, and he's going to do it as long as he can. Um, he you know, he still has Mike Gascoigne um, as his biggest advocate, and um, if they feel he can do the job, then great. I just it'd be nice to see Lotus um, take some new blood. For me personally, I, I think uh, a lot of these guys are hanging around a long time these days and it'd be good to see some young drivers come through. Virgin, I think, is an interesting case that they've just had a write-off of a season. The car didn't work from the start. Uh, the embarrassment of the fuel tank being too small. Um, they ditched Nick Worth and the whole CFD-only philosophy. They brought Pat Simmons in as a, as a, a great um, uh, tr trouble uh, shooter in many ways to, to sort the team out and give them some structure um, and it'll be interesting to see what progress they make with a more conventional uh, setup next year um, there's no point judging them on this year um, and it, it, one of the big wastes for me in Formula 1 is, is Timo Glock who just deserves to be in, in that midfield scrap trying to trying to attract attention from the big teams he's so much better than, than Virgin Racing at the moment and HRT, I've just got nothing to say about HRT, I don't really know why they exist or, or why they're in Formula 1 uh, that's, a, that's a tough <laughs> sentence to follow. Uh, thanks for that. The, uh, I mean, something I was just going to say about, about Lotus. I, you know, the, the problem I've, I found with Lotus is they keep promising they're going to do great things, which is always a dangerous game to play. Okay, not dangerous if you need sponsors, but it's a dangerous game to play because it just sets you up for a bit of disappointment. However, I do think they are going to be improving quite dramatically from now on in. Because the, the other day, Kovalainen was asked, you know, would you not like a job in one of the mid, mid, sort of mid-grid teams? He said, absolutely not. The only time I'd leave this team is if I got a, if I got a drive in one of the people, one of the teams right at the front of the grid. So and he's not, you know, he's not stupid. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you know, he's not stupid, and I, I no. think maybe they know something we don't. Maybe that's why Truly's holding on just for another season and and thinks, okay, they're not going to be grabbing podiums, but they might well be getting the points that you thought they would this year. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I think that uh, pretty much wraps up our views on the uh, three teams at the back of the Grand Prix grid in 2011. And it will be intriguing to see if Lotus can move forward in 2012. A great season, Nigel. Exciting racing. All right, you and neither you nor I are keen on gimmicks, gizmos, but it was a good watch. Interest, uh, a wonderful lack of politics, I thought. I enjoyed that. Um, 
Do you have a highlight of of your year in Formula One? Well, I mean, my highlights, I suppose. I, I mean, I I tend to remember memorable passes. Um, I I thought in Brazil last weekend. Uh, I know Jensen rather tried to sort of tone it down by saying, oh, well, I was backing up because the Michael had put rubbish all over the track and all the rest of it. But I thought Alonso's pass around the outside of Jensen on Sunday was glorious. I've never seen a car overtake that before on the outside. Uh, and the two others, um, in fact, Alonso was the victim. One was um, uh, Mark's pass at Eau Rouge which we talked about earlier on, which I thought was simply extraordinary. I don't ever recall, in all my years of going to Spa, I don't ever recall seeing a Formula One car make a genuine competitive pass on another into a Rouge. Um, and the last, I thought, was um, early in the race at Monza, um, at the second Lesmo, I think it was the second Lesmo, where Vettel was right behind Alonso and knew he absolutely had to get clear before DRS came into play. Um, and Fernando what he did what he always does on these occasions, because as Jensen says, he's hard, but he's completely fair. Put his car on the line and he said, right, this is where I'm sitting. You want to pass me, boy, you go right or left. It's up to you and I'm not moving. And Sebastian chose to go left, uh, and in doing so, put two wheels on the grass, and didn't lift, and got the lead. And I thought, yeah, that's to me, that's um, in the case of both drivers, in every instance I've just mentioned, that's proper Grand Prix driving. Damien Smith, your highlights of the year, Mr. Editor. My highlight of the year was watching the British Grand Prix from the grandstands with my seven-year-old son and seeing his reaction to seeing Formula One in the flesh, his first experience of it. And it kind of took me back to being seven years old at Silverstone when I saw my first Grand Prix. And uh, it just reminds you, that was 81, John Watson. Um, but it just reminded you how dramatic it is to watch a Grand Prix and, and, and to see the reaction of the, the people around me and how much pleasure you can still take from it. Noise is still important for anyone who uh, doesn't work for Audi. Um, there's no doubt about that. Um, and, um, yeah, so that was a personal highlight. In terms of the races, I think the, the Canada race will stand out for, for certain. Just seeing uh, Jensen, Harry, Vettel and those that last lap and seeing, seeing Vettel crack. And uh, it does give us hope that he's not, he's not perfect. He's, you know, he's, uh, he's got his fallibilities, the same as everyone. Um, I think there's been a lot of good moments this year that, that I think Nigel's touched on, on the best ones already really um, I'm optimistic that we've got an exciting season coming up next year and that um, as long as it's going to come down to the tyres again Pirelli have such an important role to play in Formula 1 if they prov provide the right tyres to produce racing um, then we're in for a great season and um, they understand their position I was a little alarmed in the second half of the season how the races were starting to come a little bit dull and predictable um, and I hope that over the winter um, they have a long hard think about um, how they're going to approach the new season. Ed Foster, quick uh, highlights of the year. Yeah, well, I was, I was just—I uh, scribbled a couple down. I think Damien's stolen one. So, uh, <laughs> but so no, certainly one of the highlights was was the Canadian race, just because 
it was so unlikely, you know, when, when Jensen was, you know, almost dead last, to come back and win and, you know, overtake Vettel on the last lap with a mistake, I'm sorry, a mistake from Vettel, you know, no one would have put money on it. Uh, the other one as well I'd, I thought was brilliant was the start that Alonso made in Monza. And just, it was a, an amazing start. And even though his car was not capable of winning that race at all, he still gave the Italian fans something to cheer about on that first lap. I mean, the, you know, the, the noise from the grandstands must have been absolutely amazing. And then one of the other highlights for me was actually the Indian Grand Prix. And, you know, it's a, we won't go into it now, but, you know, it's, it's, it's a hotly debated topic certainly amongst all of us that you know all these new Grand Prix they're going to a lot of places where they couldn't really care less about a Formula 1 car and you know that okay if you went to India a year ago and you said Formula 1 to them they would have had no idea what you're talking about but the fact that they had 95,000 people on race day and the first time they've ever hosted a Grand Prix and you know I just thought that was brilliant and we you know we've gone to so many tracks recently where the grandstands are just empty and I just thought the reception they had for Formula One was was amazing for me. I totally agree. Um, for me, it was uh, Fernando Alonso's demonstration laps at Silverstone in Bernie Ecclestone's Ferrari. I yes. thought that was, an, for me, that was a, an absolute high of the year. Uh, Sebastian Vettel's four-wheel slide through the Ascaria ch chicane. I think that was in qualifying. Well, I, I've replayed it a few times. It makes me laugh every time I watch it. Absolutely fantastic. And finally, everything about Jensen Button at McLaren. I thought he was just an amazing example of a great British racing driver in a great British team, uh, having a good time, coming right back onto top form, and just generally good old JB. I thought it was a great year. Okay. Um, well, thank you very much for listening, everybody. I think that just about, I'm looking at Damien, our editor, but I think that just about wraps up our review of the 2011 season here at the Bluebird Club in the King's Road in Chelsea in London, where, as I said at the beginning, it all started to take shape for Christian Horner and Adrian Newey. Thank you very much to Alan Hyde, who's been with us uh, all year, recording our podcasts, editing them and getting them into some sort of shape that you can enjoy listening to. Thank you, of course, to Nigel Roebuck, to Ed Foster, and to Damien Smith. And we will be back with you in 2012 with our podcasts and, of course, every month with Motorsport Magazine. Look forward to seeing you then. Bye-bye. Motorsport Magazine, for the very best in motor racing.